Welcome to Third Flatiron's latest sci-fi podcast from Boulder, Colorado and Air Scotland. What would the world do without that great silvery disc up in the sky? Join us as author Marilyn K. Martin tugs at our heartstrings while she explores a post-war dystopia in Our Problem Child, Langerfeld the Moon. Marilyn was raised in Washington State and says she loved just walking out the door and seeing a snow-capped Mount Rainier rising above the hills and trees in the near distance. So, she understands how powerful certain majestic land features, or an orbiting moon, can affect people. This story first appeared in Third Flatiron's Fall-Winter 2016 anthology, Keystone Chronicles. To find out more about Marilyn's new work, see the interview posted along with this podcast and visit her Author Central page on Amazon.com. For more podcasts from Third Flatiron, check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to our feed. And now, here's Our Problem Child, Langerfeld the Moon, read by Marie Boyko. Our Problem Child, Langerfeld the Moon, by Marilyn K. Martin. We're having problems with the moon, again. Well, the problems are mostly ongoing now when they used to come in spurts during tidal stresses. Wine glass in hand, I stood by our living room window and stared up at that dark lump in the sky. We'd bought this pre-war circular house on a hilltop because it could rotate 360 degrees from grumpy grandchildren of the deceased builder who never could get it to work right. But my husband was brilliant at making pre-war machinery work. We'd only had a few temporary breakdowns in ten years, and we grew to love our little circular mountaintop, since we could always see the moon from any evening vantage point. Our workdays never ended since the Rep-Rip Wars. Our poor little orbital moon had survived, but never again looked the same. Most of its outer mantle layer had been blasted away by oblique weapons fire. So it was smaller and darker now. The semi-molten iron core was now fully solid, surrounded by mostly black basalt, hard and angular. The problem was trying to keep our smaller, denser moon in a stable orbit. Pinnard came in with a tankard of foamy beer. I'd given him a craft beer hookup to the local bar down below as a Christmas gift a few years back. And what is our unruly stepchild doing tonight, he sighed in only half-jest, as he sank into an easy chair facing the glass window I was standing beside. That was the job of my husband and me, as the most senior PhDs in astronomical physics to survive the Rep-Rip Wars. The government begged us to figure out a stable orbit for the moon, and then keep the sucker in orbit. Langerfeld took three laser blasts in the past six hours to push it back into orbit, I replied casually, checking my computer screen embedded in the upper corner of the glass window. We called our geologic stepchild Langerfeld as an inside joke. Pinnard's last name was Feld, and we'd hidden out during the last Rep-Rip war underground with his extended family. And his brother's youngest child, Langer, was singularly the most obnoxious, devious, unpredictable, and defiant child on the planet just like the moon was now. Pinnard stared out at the moon now, frowning. That's a lot of laser blasts for that small a time frame, he offered, taking a sip of beer. I see a little shimmy as it rotates. You still get a large warning bumper on its permitted zone of movement? Always, I answered with a sigh. Pinnard was good at double-checking my stats without being obnoxious about it. 
astronomy and defense texts had helped us work out the range of permitted orbital movement for the moon. There was little chance it would drift away from Earth on its own, held by Earth's gravity and tidal forces. But if it inched too close to Earth, the defense lasers on mountaintops blasted it back into orbit before it could enter freefall and impact Earth. It was tricky, but public debate polls had consistently shown that Earth's inhabitants didn't want the moon destroyed. The older folks especially wanted the moon left as it had been for millions of years, shining down on us in monthly cycles of curved slivers, plus that monthly full moon of legend and lore, guiding ancient farmers and growers who had lifted our ancestors out of the endless slog of following migrating herds of beasts to hunt for food just to survive. And Congress agreed, leave the moon in orbit, as we all struggled to heal and rebuild. Speaking of healing, I glanced back at the mural we'd painted together on the opposite wall, a mystical juxtaposition of farming families growing and harvesting food crops, with always an eye to the moon and its silvery cycles. Agriculture tied to moon tables had finally let our ancestors settle down and start contemplating the mysteries of life, time, and space, instead of tending to weeping children in damp caves crying from hunger and cold, more than half of whom never lived to grow up. No, no one wanted to lose our moon. So we sent away all the galactic mining companies who'd shown up after the truce was signed, offering to buy what was left of our moon. For whatever its distance and remoteness, it was still part of us, especially after the glowing battles that destroyed the cities and people had migrated out into overgrown rural areas to start cottage industries on a barter scale. That hard and dark little shaky moon became our talisman, part of a triangular touchstone including a benevolent great god and a recovering Mother Earth. So no, no one could fathom the thought of losing our moon. Someone had to try and save it. So Pinard and I spent our days, or more accurately, our 24-7 lives, focused on keeping Langerfeld in orbit. We ran our stats constantly on some repaired computers and communicated by phone with an odd assortment of moon tenders. We were now on a first-name basis with everyone, from Pentagon generals to far-flung graduate students who tended the mountaintop defense lasers all over the world. The closest laser corrector in the Rocky Mountains suddenly blasted out a white flash at the moon, which shimmied as it was pushed back into orbit. I glanced at Pinard, who shook his head. I know, I admitted softly. The data has been trending toward more laser corrections more frequently for several weeks now. I think it was caused by the meteor showers last month. I haven't told you, sighed Pinard, putting his tankard of beer down on a side table to rub his weary face, but I've been taking a lot of heat from the Pentagon for the last few months. I caught my breath and turned to focus on my husband. Without the correctional blasts from the defense lasers, we had no mission. And no moon. Those laser blasts are getting more and more expensive, said Pinard, looking up at me over clenched hands like he always did when he was about to tell me something he knew I wasn't going to like. And we're tying up what are supposed to be planet-protecting defensive lasers, Pinard continued. It makes for an exploitable weakness in our defense grid, according to General Dale. Since our mountaintop lasers are thousands of miles apart, all a clever enemy has to do is figure out what mountaintop laser will be deployed as the moon starts to move closer to Earth in a tighter orbit. When that defense laser is blasting our moon back into orbit, an enemy would have a doorway through our defense grid. 
And even with a truce, I added with a heavy sigh, the reps have no intention of vacating Mars. Pinard nodded grimly and sat back to grab his tankard of beer. It's the old physics conundrum, my love, the law of inevitability versus the theory of sustainment. It was a calm and warm evening most places in America, in large venue sports stadiums and outdoor starlight concert pavilions. Others watched live at home on TVs and monitors. The older folks tended to be tearful, like they were burying another loved one lost to the rep-rip wars. To the teens and twenties crowd, it was an exciting event with a hint of a party time, although dancing and loud music were not allowed inside the venues. To younger kids in school, they'd spent the past week preparing for another holiday, learning the history amid crayon and crepe paper crafts, and writing essays and poems. At the appointed hour of 8 p.m. Eastern, the shrunken and shriveled, war-damaged orb in its full moon glory overhead in most of the U.S., the ceremony began. Pinard and I sat on the dais at the mall in Washington, D.C. Suddenly, the lights went out, and the live television people were pointing fingers and gesturing with the precision of generals about to start a battle. We stood quickly when they played the well-known intro for the President of the United States. The last time I stood on this dais, it was to announce a truce of the last Rep-Rip War, he said. Tonight we say goodbye again, but for a more joyous occasion, for we shall now be able to feed and shelter every citizen, build roads and bridges, help businesses get back on their feet, and put this country back to work again. There were more speeches and music, sonorous songs that echoed down the mall, past war memorials and statues. Then, at precisely 9 p.m., there were more manic gestures and pointing from the long-out-of-work live television people. I swear I could feel the designated mountaintop lasers turn on by the hum of serious vibrations through my feet. Pinard already had one tear coming down his cheek as I reached for his hand. I am the last speaker, said a nervous 14-year-old now at the microphone. Our moon was kept steady in orbit for as long as humanly possible by my aunt and uncle, and they named it after me as a private joke between them. I am Langer Feld, and they asked me to be the last speaker tonight for a proper send-off of our only orbiting moon, and... He quickly glanced over at Pinard and me with a mischievous grin. I've added a little surprise to show them that I am capable of being responsibly attuned to the moment and am no longer just an obnoxious toddler. The orchestra played a short build-up as Langer fiddled with cutting the strings attached to a tarp below the stage. As the four defense lasers suddenly blasted out of mountaintops many miles away, all around the city a cascade of helium-filled balloons suddenly floated upward obscuring everyone's view. Pinard leaned over. Should we ever tell him that this is why they forbade fireworks on this occasion? he asked sardonically. No, I sighed, catching one tear on my own cheek now. Let the young people have their fun, Pinny. They'll never miss the old moon like we do. It really shouldn't be a funeral for them, but a celebration. This country is going to experience massive improvements in all areas, and his generation will benefit the most. So, Langer got it right. Let the young people have their fun. The defense lasers connected with the moon and began to gently push it away, back, out of orbit. There were cheers and tears, people with lit candles, everyone waving goodbye. As the moon got smaller and smaller in the distance, dark machinery craft suddenly appeared around it in space. Amid flashes, 
they attached tractor beams to the remnant of our moon, that hard little ball of basalt and high-grade iron that tended toward steel and was very valuable. They started towing it away out of our solar system. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns.